If you have a Bible with you, please open it to Matthew chapter 9. If you don't have one, you can borrow one from us. If you're using a cell phone, I would again remind you that in order to limit distractions from that phone, you're certainly welcome to use that phone. But if you wanted to limit distractions that that might provide for you, uh, you can take that Bible in the pocket of the pew in front of you and you can find Matthew chapter 9 on page 763 of the Bible. Often, sometimes, the greatest insights we get as we are attempting to learn is seeing something we thought we knew, but just in a different light. The internet's a good place to do this kind of stuff, but it's also a place to unlearn a lot of good things that you've learned. So, one of the ways that I've, I've thought about how we are so constricted in our understanding of the world is to see maps sort of flipped on their heads, where south is pointing up and north is pointing down, and it really does throw you off, and it shows how much we think of the world and how much we consider the world from our own culture and convention. There's no actual reason why north points up on our maps. It's just convention. But nevertheless, sometimes we get stuck in the ruts of the way we view things and see things. My wife and I have long lamented the fact that McDonald's doesn't carry salads anymore. They used to. They don't. We often stop at McDonald's after church because uh, we need to find quick food for our kids and we're sometimes lazy and tired on Sunday afternoons, and so that's a good place to stop. And and we would really like to be able to get salads there, but uh, it's easy then to think that McDonald's doesn't offer these anymore because all they want to do is offer you sodium-laden fries and burgers, which are, by the way, excellent. I have no problem with that. But you'd be wrong to think that that's not because they don't want to offer healthy things. Back in 2014, McDonald's started offering broccoli as a side in Happy Meals, which is great. Although no child has ever actually requested broccoli with a Happy Meal, and McDonald's apparently gave no thought to the acts of terrorism that would happen when parents force that choice upon their children, knowing they could have fries, ending up with broccoli is no good. But apparently McDonald's did think about this, because back in 2014, they taste-tested an invention. And to think that McDonald's isn't on the forefront of nutritional information, consider this. In 2014, they attempted to make I kid you not, bubblegum-flavored broccoli. And they taste-tested it, and the kids hated it because even kids were confused by this. Like, this thing I shouldn't like, but it tastes like something I kind of like, but it's still broccoli, and so they rejected it. This sort of Frankenstein thing didn't quite work for them. These things did not pair together well. Broccoli can taste like many things. You wrap some bacon around it, it tastes like bacon. Everyone can get on board with that. But bubblegum is not one of those things, apparently. Those associations don't go well together. We are disciples of Jesus above all things else. And what a disciple means is not simply that we're associated with Jesus or that we're aligned with him in some mystical way, but that we are those who sit at his feet and learn from him. We learn how to live our lives. We learn the way we ought to view the world. We, we have our worldview and our passions changed by what he says it should look like and what he says we should desire. And at times, learning can be difficult. We've, we've read and listened to and heard these words so often that we think that we know exactly what they're supposed to mean. And our cultures and our conventions We insist on putting the squareness of these teachings through the round holes that we have for them, and we can make a lot of things fit that way. But being good disciples means, simply put, not doing that. It's listening to what Jesus has to say and learning to adjust our understandings based upon what Jesus tells us. 
And here in chapter 9, Jesus continues his teaching both by the performance of miracles, but also by teaching his disciples how they ought to live and the things that he is capable of. If we listen to these familiar words, what we might find is that Jesus associates two things together often that we just don't think maybe naturally go together. Some may not find these things odd. Some might hear of these associations and think, I I have long thought of it that way. For you, I'm grateful that you get to hear it again and of the grace and the goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ. For others, this will be the equivalent of having a map flipped on its head. Either way, it is good to hear of these things from our Lord. So let us turn to what our Lord says and to think through these things and pray that it goes over a little bit better than bubblegum broccoli. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. The word of our God says this, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said then to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and he went home. When the crowds saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This is the word of our God. As we come to these three separate stories, the first thing I'd put before you as far as how Jesus is perhaps associating two things that you might not think are directly connected to one another, I would tell you that forgiveness is healing. Forgiveness is healing. Chapter 9 opens with Jesus crossing back over the sea again. He has healed the two 
demon-possessed men on the far side, and he has dutifully listened to people as they asked him to leave their area, so he has come back to the other sides. And when he returns, he immediately finds a company of gentlemen carrying their paralytic friend on a bed. Obviously, he is unable to walk as he is paralyzed, and this was the easiest way to get him from point A to point B to make sure that he was put in front of Jesus. Something about this particular image stirred Jesus. And before they can even get a word out, before they can ask him anything, he ups and utters the thing that I think that they perhaps didn't expect to hear. Seeing their faith, their not meaning the men who are carrying the paralytic alone, but all of them, including the paralytic. It's not as though the men put the paralytic on the bed and said, we're going to take you to Jesus. And he was like, no, no, no. And they're like, no, you can't do anything about it. You're paralyzed. So just lay back. No, it was his faith as well. He went with them. It's all of their faith. So Jesus simply tells them, you are forgiven. And I'm assuming that that is not the thing that they wanted to hear. That's not why they brought this gentleman. They weren't thinking, Fred, you've done some miserable things in your life and we need to get you forgiveness. They might be thinking that, but that's not why they put him on the bed and that's not why they carried him. They carried him there to be healed. The whole scene has this this paralytic as a bystander. And we have no idea what he's thinking. We have no insight into him. He's, he's just somebody who is acted upon. He does only one thing, and that is he gets up his mat and goes home. We have no idea what he's thinking. But I have no doubt that what he was expecting was not that. Jesus is a miracle worker. We know him primarily as a miracle worker. I need a miracle And what I got instead was forgiveness, which frankly I'm grateful for, but I would also assume that given the way the crowds respond to what Jesus is about to do, no one is actually assured that he has the authority to do this. Given what we read, given that he has nothing to say to this, I'm not sure that he was expecting or even cared for what Jesus did for him. We put great stock in the forgiveness of sins. But I'm guessing that this man wouldn't have considered his need for forgiveness nearly as as high a level of priority as his kneeling of healing. But I think that we should also expect that Jesus knows everything that we do and more to boot. The words that he speaks here are not just you are forgiven, but take heart. Or another way of putting it would be be courageous. I think that he knows what he's about to do to this guy has put him on edge a little bit. He says, it's almost like he's saying, just be calm for a second, son. I've got some work to do here. You're going to be healed, but take courage for just a moment. Your sins are forgiven. As though this was going to provoke what happened. And indeed, while we might not know what he's thinking, we have very good insight into what others are thinking. And the scribes who are there hear Jesus announce forgiveness, and they say immediately, well, he's, he's blaspheming. He's speaking wrongly about God. And here, he's speaking wrongly about God because he's taking what is only the prerogative of God upon himself. And well, we ought to understand what they mean. Sins are first and foremost against God, and they are his to forgive. Some sins are quite readily 
directly toward God, and they almost impact no one else. So if you are going to worship a false god, that is quite clearly an attack upon God. But what we have in Scripture is the commitment to the idea that even sins that appear to be most directly toward other people are actually sins and affronts before God. No better example comes than the man David himself, who not only steals Uriah's wife, but then murders him, or at least is the cause of the murder of him. And yet David himself can stand in Psalm 51 and say, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. The whole scenario lays out that no matter what ills happen in this world, what sins happen in this world, the person, the thing, the being that we need forgiveness from the most is not those who we sinned against, but God himself. This is naturally the way it would be. If you harmed one of my children, not on accident, but if you went out of your way to purposely harm one of my children, not only would I try to defend them, but I can guarantee you I would take it as an attack on myself. I would take it personally. If you, if you injured purposely somebody else out there in the world, I might want justice to be done. But the, the sense of feeling of a necessary justice is heightened when it's done against somebody who I am in charge of, I a love, I associate myself with. We notice this for things as small as sports, right? A batter gets beaned and the bench is clear and they're actually upset. Now, sometimes baseball players put on, so they just kind of like walk out of the dugout, and they're not going to do anything. They're going to look meanly at one another. But sometimes brawls break out because they're affronted. You hit our team, you hit us. If it works that way for human beings, why wouldn't it work that way for God? Why would God see an attack on his creatures, fearfully and wonderfully made, whether it's actual oppression, whether it's lying and slander, whether it's simply hurtful things done to them or grand, ugly sin, why would he not see that malicious act as a dedicated attack on his own work of art, as being defaced and betrayed and slandered? Why would he not take that personally? Of course God takes it personally. And therefore, of course, God is the one who is to forgive and God alone. So I think if we hear the scribes say, well, this is blasphemy, we can understand well why they say this is blasphemy. And that makes Jesus' response to them all the more astonishing because Jesus doesn't clarify for them. He doesn't say, you, you've misunderstood what I'm saying. You've misunderstood what forgiveness is. You've misunderstood what, what all of these things are. He doesn't say that. He says very clearly, why do you think evil in your hearts. It's not a misunderstanding. It's a lack of morality. It's evil. Why were they expected to know that this was okay? No prophet in Israel ever spoke like this. It's not that they didn't offer forgiveness. Forgiveness was indeed offered, but it was always filtered through God. It was always because God spoke through them and because they, they talked for God. Isaiah 118, famously, is a very good example of this. He says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as wool. White as snow, excuse me. Clearly, Jesus thought that they knew what was going on, or they should have known what was going on. And I think that the answer is very clear. Healing is is forgiveness. Forgiveness is healing. The Bible 
links clearly together at every level, death and disease with sin. They're not natural in the most base meaning of the word natural. They arise only because of our sin. They are effects of sin. Whether, where there exists no sin, there is neither death nor disease nor sickness nor tears nor pain. So to remove sickness, disease, and maladies is to remove the effect of sin. And to remove the effect of sin is to forgive it. This, I think, is what Jesus highlights in his question to them. And I'm convinced that people misunderstand it. I think people think that because forgiveness is such a separate thing from healing, that Jesus is just saying, which one's easier to say? And because one of them's more difficult, I'm proving that the other one is actually true, which doesn't make any sense. I could say the same thing. I could say, what's easier for me to say I'm the smartest man in this room or for me to do a cartwheel so that you'll know that I'm the smartest man in this room and now I'm going to let you down. There is no cartwheel, not until we get that fog machine and we can have real worship in here. <laughs> but it, the two things you're like, that wouldn't prove, unless they're linked somehow, that wouldn't prove that you are the smartest man in the room. The reason why Jesus' commitment to this works is because the two are the same thing. You think I can't tell him that his sins are forgiven, but I can tell him to get up and walk. And the effects are seen immediately. The wind blows where it wills. You only see the effect, the rippling of it, but you don't see the source of it. This is exactly the same connection that the Old Testament makes. Isaiah 53 says, by his wounds we are healed. It is forgiveness and healing that comes to us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying, for me to forgive him is the same for me to heal him. Just take your mat and walk. Your sins are forgiven. You are made well. People didn't know what to make of all this. The crowd saw it. They were afraid. They glorified God. And it says, who gave such authority to men? And again, when we read through Scripture, we can read that so quickly and just assume in the back of our minds that for some reason, we think that that means he gave it to man. He gave it to Jesus. But that's not what it says. It doesn't even say men, really. It says he gave this authority to humans, to people. Friend, this is our authority as well. We have every right to forgive the sins of others. And not to forgive their sins against us, but to forgive them before God. When we find those who are caught in sin, we, we lead them in the gospel, we remind them of the good work that Jesus Christ has done, we remind them that in Jesus, who has paid the penalty for their sin, there is no condemnation. That if you entrust yourself to him, believe in him, put all of, of your sins upon him, and you repent and believe that you are free of your sin, we can put before them quite clearly, you are forgiven if you truly trust in that. And we not, might not be able to tell the purity of their faith, but we can certainly address the content of it. We are perfectly okay, unequivocally, to declare that those who believe in Christ are forgiven for their sins. And to what's more, say unequivocally that one day they will be relieved fully and totally from all bodily ills because of that very salvation. Forgiveness is healing. It might not be today, but there will come a day 
when you are fully and completely and utterly cleansed from all sin. And on that day, you will rise from the dead as whole people, forgiven in soul and healed in body. Forgiveness is healing. Secondly, friendship is mercy. Friendship is mercy. Jesus continues to wander through the area as he's been doing, and he he comes up to a tax booth, and he sees the man that we consider to be the author of this gospel, Matthew, sitting in his tax booth, and he says simply, follow me. Now, we've heard stories like that before, and as we said before, I'm certain that there was more disgust than just those two simple words that Jesus gives to Matthew, but I'm also certain that no matter how many words were spoken, the end result is simply that Jesus stood in front of someone who had no reason to follow him and said, follow me, and the man left everything behind. He just left. Jesus just got done telling somebody, let the dead bury their own dead, and that's exactly what Matthew seems to be doing. He's going to leave all of it behind. Pulling back from the issue of divine election, it is amazing to think of how interesting and captivating a person Jesus must have been. I mean, he just, he's able to look at people and to get them to leave everything. He is, I think, the Dos most interesting man, only without the beer. So Jesus leads him back to the house that he's staying at. Matthew comes with him, and they're going to share a meal together. They recline at table together, which is the same thing as saying they're going to sit down and they're going to to have a meal together. They recline because the, the table is so low that it's easier to lay at it than to sit at it. Before we get into what happens next and why, it's important for us to really come to grips with what a tax collector was. So we can understand how the Jews would have viewed them. During the Revolutionary War, there was a certain man who rose prominently through the ranks. He was a great soldier. He was part of uh, daring actions during the time of the war. He led troops at Lexington and Concord. He engaged successfully with the enemies wherever he found them. And that didn't mean just commanding them from a distance. He was actively involved in fighting. He was everything that you would want in a military leader. He was brave, he was commanding, and he was intelligent. There was some hesitation, not because of anything wrong on his part, but just because Congress was seemingly dragging his feet. But George Washington thought much of him, and he promoted him and promoted him, eventually getting to the point where he was the head of West Point. But then, for reasons that are various and sundry, he decided to give up all of that, and turned to the British. He was a traitor. You know him as Benedict Arnold. He's now completely and utterly synonymous with people who are traitors. Like Arnold was to the revolution, and Cassius and Brutus were to Dante, and even as Judas was to Jesus, so tax collectors were to the Jews. They were aiding and abetting the enemy. They were taking from their own people and giving to those who would oppress their people for nothing else besides monetary gain, for something as small and as stupid as money. They would not only turn their back on their people, but upon their God. It's not hard to imagine why they were hated in Judah. So Jesus has called this tax collector, 
not only has he called him, but he has called him and then shared a meal with him. And again, some cultural understanding matters. We sit in rooms where we share meals with people all the time that we don't even like to associate with. And I'm not talking about family gatherings. I mean, like in restaurants, right? You, you sometimes have to sit down with people you don't know, and if you knew them, you would, be, you would kind of find them despicable, and, and you wouldn't associate with them at all, and you wouldn't want to have fellowship with them at all. But that's not how it was back in the day. To have a meal with somebody was to declare them an associate, to bring them close to you, to align yourself with them. And Jesus here is knowing who this man is. He called him from the tax booth. He knew his work. And he still proceeded not only to invite him back, but to eat with him. And then what's worse is Matthew knows more. And Matthew thought it was okay to invite them along as well. And so it's understandable why the Pharisees would see all of this going on and say, why? Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? It's easy sometimes to overlook how radical what Jesus was doing was. And indeed, the Pharisees are put out greatly by what they see. But let's read the Pharisees' question in the best possible light. Let's assume that the Pharisees are well-trained in the Scriptures, and they know that God is indeed an incredibly merciful and kind God. Say, we have read the Scriptures. We know that God is forgiving. When people come back to him, he is able to cleanse them. They might even quote Isaiah 118 and make their sins white as snow. He can do that kind of thing. But there's a difference. There's a difference between holding out the mercy and the grace of God and associating with sinners without any repentance on their side. They know where to find us. Sinners know how to gain forgiveness. They know how to track down the Pharisees and the scribes to, uh, to find out what they need to do that God might look upon them with mercy and grace. If mercy and forgiveness was what they really wanted, they could get it. But they insist upon maintaining themselves in what they are. They're bogged down and taking sides, bogged down in sin and taking sides of the enemies of God. Their refusal to come to us means that we cannot be with them. And Jesus' response is straight and to the point. Friends, you would admit, he would say to the Pharisees, that these are sick people. They are demented and perverted in their minds that they would want to help the Romans against their own people. They must be sick. You would admit as much. But as you well know, the sick need a physician, and the sick sometimes need somebody to come and help them, somebody to get them. We just had the paralytic. He couldn't come to me on his own. His friends brought him. Sometimes, sometimes, sinful people need to be tracked down. He puts the nail in the coffin, though, when he quotes Hosea 6.6. 6. The passage from Hosea is rich, and it deserves to be read from the first verse, which we will do. Hosea 6, beginning in verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he might heal us. He has struck us down that he will, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. 
What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets, and I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as light, for I desire steadfast love. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And Hosea looks at the people of God and he says, you've been hurt by God. God has caused harm to come upon you. He has torn you that he might heal you. He struck you down that he might bind you up. Every action that has happened has been the Lord's action. And it has been pointed that you might come back to him. And he says in the middle of the passage there, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. Who is the Lord? That sixth verse tells us, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. To know God is to know mercy, because God is mercy. What are they doing when they they want to commit all these offerings and burnt offerings? Those are the things that we do for God. The Pharisees think that the most important thing is what they can do for God. That friendship with God is something that is earned because we've offered something to him or done something for him. But in thinking that, they have radically misunderstood who God is and what he is like. God doesn't just do mercy. He is mercy. God continually, in the passage in Hosea, is pursuing sinners. He's pursuing the nation. He's not waiting for them to come to him. They come back to him because he has pursued them. This is the point of Hosea. God is always merciful. Even in his harshness, he's merciful. He is always pursuing those, always pursuing sinners. Jesus doesn't become a tax collector's friend because he wants to say it's okay to be a tax collector. He doesn't come alongside sinners so that they might believe that it's okay that they're sinners. He doesn't eat with them so that they would feel better about themselves or so that he can encourage them in their paths in life. He does so that he might heal them, so that he could show them mercy, so that he could show them grace. Friends, I think that we often need to think about our friendships this way. Often we consider friends simply those who give reciprocally to us. We offer laughs, and they laugh. We offer help, and they might give us help in return. We offer comfort, and they give us comfort. But I think anyone in here would admit that Jesus' friendship is awfully one-sided. He offers home and hospitality to these tax collectors so that his mercy might be shown to them. Befriend people who can give you nothing. Befriend people and take them on who offer you nothing so that you might show that friendship is more than just I give and then you get. So that you can show that friendship is indeed mercy because that's the kind of friend that God is in Jesus Christ. Jesus, full of mercy, is always pursuing, always seeking, always ready to show mercy. Friendship is mercy. Last, feasting is salvation. Feasting is salvation. Verse 14 introduces us to the third group to come and ask a question of Jesus. This one most closely aligned with him, and these are the disciples of John, Jesus' cousin. 
And they put the question to him, which is a simple one. They say, hey, the Pharisees fast and we fast. And that's not because they're saying, hey, we and the Pharisees are coming to you together, but they're, they're kind of saying, you know that we and the Pharisees don't get along. John famously is not a big fan of the leadership in Jerusalem. And so the point of saying that we and the Pharisees fast is saying like, Every other group fasts. Doesn't matter how far away you are to the Pharisees or how far away from the Pharisees you are, all of us fast. But you guys don't fast. Why don't you fast? And again, Jesus' response is pretty straightforward. When the bridegroom's there, there's not fasting. The, the whole process of weddings looked a little bit differently, but as long as the groom was there, that meant that feasting and fasting was supposed to happen. What would it have been like to have been at a wedding and to fast at that wedding? It would have been an insult to the bride and to the groom and to their families. They, they have brought you together to have this big feast and someone brings you out the dinner and brings you out the wine and, and you look at it and you say, nah, I'm going to fast tonight. It's an insult to them. So as long as there is the groom present with you, you, you eat, you drink, you are merry because it is a time of celebration it is a time of happiness and of gladness as long as the bridegroom is there. But what Jesus implies here is that he, obviously, is the bridegroom. Which is interesting because, again, it points back to this sort of Old Testament theme that is summed up. Matthew has pointed toward it, but we can point toward it again. And here we can just go back to another passage in Hosea, in Hosea 2. Hosea 2 it's worth, we're not going to spend time to read the entirety of the passage. You can go back and read it, but Hosea 2 starts very negatively. The, Israel has been like an adulterous wife to the Lord, and the Lord has cast her out, and he will show her the end effects of her infidelity, and it's not good for her. And yet, in that same chapter, the Lord says this, Therefore, behold, after, after all of that happens, he says, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards, and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, that foreign god. You will look on the Lord, not just as though he is the Lord of heaven and earth, but as he is the Lord betrothed to you, come to you to make you his. That is a marriage proposed, but that marriage proposal has not come to fruition. And Jesus is now saying, but the bridegroom is here. That marriage is happening. This is not a time of fasting, but of celebration and rejoicing. Therefore, my disciples don't fast. Now, he says the bridegroom will go away, and when that happens, there will be fasting. Jesus will not be with us bodily as he was then, always. So there is still work to be done. There is still grief and sorrow and lamenting to happen here in this world. And because of those things, we ought to fast. But those were always factors of the old life. That was always factors of the life before the bridegroom came. That we were always waiting. The Jews were waiting for the goodness of the promises of God to happen. And while they were waiting, there was sorrow and grief and pain. And therefore, there was lamentation. But as soon as Jesus comes, he promises that that union between God and men will happen. He has reconciled us to God. He has forgiven our sins. He has healed our iniquities that we might be one with God. That's marriage language. But Jesus then expands on the thoughts, the metaphors, 
that he uses of a, a cloth shrinking and the wineskin bursting. They're easy enough on their own. You, he, he explains them very, very well. The problem is how they apply to us. And I think that we could dive into the details and pull out interesting applications, and I think that that would be a good thing to do, but I think staying on the surface is also perfectly fine. And there is clearly on the face of those particular illustrations this idea that the old and the new cannot be mixed. That when Jesus comes, there is now newness. And that newness means that the old ways of living, the old ways of doing things can no longer be present. So now there is no longer lamentation and grief and pain and sorrow to be highlighted. But because God has come, there is now celebration. And it doesn't mean that we, again, don't have reasons here to express sorrow. Our sin is still present. The sin of others is still present. We will have moments where we collide in those sins with one another. Therefore, pain and death, ills and slander are still here. But even in all that, the modus operandi of the Christian church is not that of grief and sorrow, but that of thanksgiving and praise and joy because we know the end of all those things. We know that the bridegroom has come and that he will come again, even as we pray, come Lord Jesus. So friends, we eat and we feast for Christ has come. God did many wonderful things for the people of Israel when they were coming out of Egypt. And in almost every one of those that he memorialized, you know what he did? He said, you're going to eat. You're going to feast during this time. Eating is one of those things that the Lord prescribes to us as a symbol of the joy that we will have in heaven, just like singing is one of those things that is most reminiscent of the joy that we will experience in heaven. Feasting is like that as well. To understand salvation is to understand feasting. The joy of salvation is the joy of eating. It is the joy of being nourished by that very hand of God, of having life given to you. It's one of the reasons why as Jesus left us with ordinances, he left us with one that was purposely just eating to remind us of his goodness and his grace. It's of no mistake that the two examples that Jesus uses in addition to marriage is of clothing and wine. Two things that were incredibly important at any wedding feast. Clothe yourself and be ready. Be prepared for the feast that is coming. Be ready for the wedding so that you might know that that wedding is indeed coming. And it's time for a celebration that the marriage feast is imminent, that God has drawn near, salvation is close. Friends, celebrate that with one another. Celebrate it here when we take the Lord's Supper Celebrate it in your homes. Celebrate it with your friends. Celebrate it in your prayers. Because with food and drink, we celebrate the salvation of our God. Fasting is salvation. After he left America, Benedict Arnold had a brief period of success. It was buoyed by his payment for his treason that the British gave to him. Yet he was never content He's always scrambling for more prestige, for more money, for more of everything. He was prideful to the end. He was convinced in his mind that he was actually acting in the best interests of America. He thought that he was saving America from an inept Congress and from having more blood spilled on the soil that they were certainly going to lose to Britain. And after all of that, after all that he did, He is known as a traitor in two countries. 
in America because he's literally a traitor. And in Britain, he's simply known as a traitor who figured out the right side to be on. But he's a traitor either way. They received him back not as a hero, but as somebody who repented of their sins and came dragging themselves back to Britain. His story is not one of hell so much as it is just the fizzling out of a bright light. Our sin, though, makes us much the same. We are traitors to God. We fight against the kingdom. We act against it. In all of our sin, we turn traitor. We help the enemies of God. We fight against the very duties that God has placed before us. He gives us commands, and we seek to establish our own reign and our own rule. Yet our Lord takes the punishment for our sin and grants us freedom instead. He gives us hope. He gives us land. He gives us grace. He gives us immunity from all past deeds and healing from all wounds solely because he is merciful and he's gracious in Jesus Christ. His grace knows no bounds and his mercy sinks in deep. Friends, do not linger in your sin. Do not delay in securing the mercy of Jesus Christ. He will heal you in his forgiveness. He will accept you in his mercy and he will feast with you in his salvation. Let us pray. Our Lord, may your name be as sweet as honey on our lips. May your kindness and salvation be our ever-present hope, our comfort and our song. With you there is always abundant goodness and provision. Let us not lose faith in these realities, but press hard into them, especially when they seem far away. Hold us in your hand, and do not let us be snatched out, either by fear or famine or foe. We ask for all these things for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you would stand with us and sing our song of response, Come, Behold the Wondrous Mystery. <laughs>